In 2007, Pirelli Tires, which is an Italian tire company, ran a series of ads promoting their tires, and their slogan is, power is nothing without control. And in fact, at the 2007 Cannes Film Festival, they ran an ad that looked like this. It's a little blurry, but I want you to check it out. Power is nothing without control. I love that. There was another one where a gazelle was running away from a lion, and he was outpacing the lion. And he's getting away, and the camera zooms in on the gazelle just as he runs into a tree and falls down flat. And then the camera pans out again, and there's two lions sitting under that tree, just going like, power is nothing without control. Another way you could say that is a virtue is only valuable when used in the right amount. Let me give you an example. And this could go in a male direction or a female direction, but I'm a guy. I don't want to speak about a guy thing for, uh, for really quick. Um, there is a fierce and creative strength inside of the heart of every man. God has made men that particular way. And it's a God-given virtue for us to be able to offer the rest of creation. But we rarely, here's the deal, we rarely feel safe praising the fierce and creative strength of men these days. Why? Why is that such um, a, a touchy subject or something to be nervous about? Because we are more accustomed to seeing the abuse or the underuse of this virtue. For example, we have men... On one hand, who try so hard to look macho and, and, and kind of like hear this phrase growing up, come on, man up, be macho, be burly, be strong. And in the process, when they inevitably wind up hurting somebody because of that, their deal is, well, just deal with it. Can't you take a joke? Man up. Don't be such a crybaby. Why are you so wimpy? And, and, and in order to, to deal with their macho-ness, then everybody else has to kind of stay out of their way. On the other hand, you have men who do not use this virtue because they're scared of this virtue. Many times because of the abuse that they've seen of this particular virtue. And so you have an underuse of this particular strength as well. And when people are even begging for them to stand up, and lend their strength to others. They're nervous to do so. They never step up to offer their strength. So on the one hand, you have the stench of toxic masculinity. On the other hand, you're left longing for emasculated men to even give you a glimpse of their strength, the strength that you know is there but lurking beneath the surface. Like I said, this is a similar thing with women. You can notice this as well. And again, I'm being extremely simplistic here, but I want to illustrate a point, is there's a difference. On the one hand, you have control freaks. On the other hand, you have puny pushovers. And you go, what is the difference? What is the middle ground? 
between toxic masculinity and emasculated men? What's the middle ground between really controlling women and absolutely pushover women? What is the virtue that lies somewhere between these extremes? And the answer is meekness. As we look at what Jesus is saying at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what we often call the Beatitudes, he is teaching that meekness actually has to be a characteristic of those who inherit the kingdom blessings. Like, in fact, as I read the whole of the New Testament, I can't escape this conclusion that meekness is a significant issue to God. In fact, the entire Bible speaks of the fact that the meekness is a really big deal. And so I would love for you to join me. If you go ahead and stand on up, we're going to read an incredibly long and difficult passage. It's Matthew 5, 5. And we're going to read that together. And I'll give you all gold stars when you're done. Here we go. We're going to read this together. It says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, as I pray that as we are opening our minds to hear what you have to say. I pray that you should also unlock our hearts. Help us to be moldable and pliable to your spirit who is speaking this morning. Some of us today really need hope and encouragement and strengthening. God, I pray that you would do that today through your word. Some of us today need a challenge, a correction, a conviction God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be free to do that in our hearts today, too, if that's what's needed. Many of us today need both. So, Lord, please, please come in and move in a way that is unique to what we've experienced this week. We need you to fall on us afresh. We need you to speak to us as if it was the first time. God, just awaken our hearts and our desires and our longing for you. God, I pray that this would be a day where we are never the same after this. Amen. You can be seated. Here's the point I think Jesus is making in our text this morning, and I'll develop this throughout the message, is that the glory we seek is given to the meek. If you're taking notes, that's a really good one to write down. That's kind of the main point. The glory that we seek is given to the meek. There, there is a wealth of biblical precedent to say meekness is a really big deal. Beyond even what Jesus says. Jesus' brother, James, in James 1.21, speaks to how meekness is to characterize our initial response to God's truth. Peter says in 1 Peter 3 that our, our witness to the rest of the world is to be done in meekness. I'm pretty sure you can think of somebody in your mind who thinks that they're being a good witness for God and is absolutely bulldozing people in the process. Paul lists meekness and gentleness, we're going to see this in a little bit, but it's the same word, as one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is a result of being close to the Holy Spirit, be filled with Him, and being in, walking in step with Him. It's a result. Several other times, Paul actually speaks to meekness as the spirit of mind in which you deal with your problems as a biblical congregation. This is the value of being in committed community. If someone's rubbing you the wrong way, 
You can get up and leave, and that will never make you more like Christ. You can go to some other church. I'll be honest, you can listen to a better preacher than me. And you can just keep going until someone finally fits all of your preferences, and you will never be more like Christ because of that. And Paul says, meekness is the characteristic value that should be dominating how we interact with each other. As someone rubs us the wrong way, as someone challenges us, as someone actually maybe is even living in sin, but God's calling us to live in righteousness, and we're going like, what does that look like? Meekness is one of those values that Paul says, that's how you're supposed to operate as a body of imperfect believers worshiping a perfect God together. Meekness is a big deal. Jesus speaks to this right at the beginning of the New Testament. It's a characteristic by which God promises to bring blessing into the lives of Christians and through them to other people. In fact, it's not even a natural characteristic in you. You were not born with meekness. You, this, is, this is a supernatural result of the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. In other words, here's a great way to tell if the Holy Spirit's really been active in someone's life. They're meek. It's a very big deal. The glory that we seek is actually given to the meek. That's who God says, I will publicly show my favor to you. So it's a big deal in the Bible, but the question that hopefully is in your mind is, what in the world is meekness? Who uses the word meek anymore? What even is meekness? And let me just start by stating the obvious. The word meek doesn't really have a positive connotation in modern usage, right? It, it implies a lot of things, none of which are appealing. Like if you tell somebody that they're meek, they're not going to think you're complimenting them. You just look in the thesaurus and you, this, or the dictionary and you're going to get this obvious connotation. Meek comes with a lot of synonyms. Humble, Docile, mild, calm, gentle, peaceful, tame, submissive, soft, spineless, passive, broken. I mean, some of those are positive, others are not. And you just look and there's other phrases that are attached um, as synonyms with meekness. To eat dirt, to lick dust, to cringe like a dog, to take it on the chin. These are the modern American usages of the word meek. So I hope you can see the problem. Just try sticking one of those into the phrase that Jesus uses. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the spineless, for they will inherit the earth. Doesn't kind of have the same ring to it, does it? Right? Blessed are those who cringe like a dog. Blessed are those who lick dust. It's hard for, to imagine Jesus saying something like this. Right? Most of, and this is why, because most of us tend to associate the word meekness with weakness. As if Jesus said, blessed are the weak. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might have noticed this already. The title of my message is, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness isn't weakness. Because if it was, there's no wonder no one would want to be called weak. I wouldn't either. Like, if, if meekness equals weakness, then this does not sound like a blessing to me. But this is the word Jesus uses, and he says there is a blessing here 
So what does he really mean? Well, the first clue to the biblical meaning of meekness lies in um, its common usage at the time in the Greek discussion of ethics. This word that Jesus uses is the Greek word pros. Okay? Greek word pros. And, it, and obviously Jesus is speaking to people who, who know the, the dominant world language at the time, which was Greek. Of the, the world that they knew, Greek was the number one language that most people knew. And so he's speaking to a people in this, in this language, in Greek. And he's saying, blessed are the pros people. This is a word that was commonly used at that time in, in the Greek ethics, okay? And it is defined, actually, by Aristotle with a lot of care. Aristotle was, uh, a, um, obviously, a philosopher, and he, he describes meekness as a virtue that lies midway between two extremes. For example, courage is a virtue, but it's the middle ground between cowardice which is an underusage of courage, and stupidity, which is an overuse of it. I literally, this last weekend, I was down in Chicago and I was watching some, all of our kids, we were like looking out the window watching these guys um, doing some construction work or something on the top of a building. Um, it was a short building, like two or three floors high, two stories high. And they weren't using a lift. They were like just kind of trying to get up this ladder that, didn't exactly look to the way that they were getting up. And I just go like, this is why women live longer than men. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> stupidity. There's better ways to do things, right? So there's courage, but then there's an overuse of it. Uh, for example, here's another one. Um, generosity is the middle ground between stinginess, which is an underuse of your resources, and, and, and liberal waste of your resources. And generosity is the middle ground between that. Um, and so, so meekness, to, as Aristotle would describe it, meekness was a virtue because it was the middle ground between the inability to show anger and the excessive use of anger. That's, now, this isn't the Bible. This is Aristotle. But I want to give you the, the thought process that's kind of dominant in this time period, right? He describes the meek man as someone who's angry on the right occasion with the right people at the right moment at the right length of time. So this is kind of how meekness shines as a virtue. Meek men demonstrate the middle ground between toxic masculinity and deadbeat dads. Meek women give us a glimpse of what lies between crazy control freaks and puny pushovers. It's the virtue that lies midway between two extremes. That's the first way, clue that we get into the meaning of the word meekness. The second clue that we get into the meaning of the word meekness is the fact that praus was used in the, by the ancient Greeks to describe a few different things. It was used to describe mild words, soothing medicine, a refreshing wind, and a horse that's been tamed. Now, what do these things have in common? They describe different forms of power that can be used for good or evil, that can be used for construction or destruction. Right? A meek horse is not a weak horse, but it's a very powerful horse that's been brought under the control of its tamer. A meek medicine is not a weak medicine that has nothing. It's a powerful medicine, but that's been used in the right dosage 
to bring healing. Um, it's the same kind of sense in which you would get a tender caress from a very strong hand. So by extension, it's used to describe bold and strong and fierce people who know how to behave. It's how we would get our word, gentlemen. So with that in mind, it, it, it has this sense of power under control. Right? Very strong, but very safe. It reminds me of the Pirelli ad, power is nothing without control. So contrast this view, this thought process, with our modern thought process of weakness in this sense. I don't think anything could be further from the truth. Meekness is power that's brought under control. It doesn't imply cowardice. It doesn't imply spinelessness. It doesn't mean indecisiveness or wishy-washy or, or a lack of confidence. No, no. It's, it's not a personality trait or a character flaw. So don't mistake confusing meekness with weakness. It's not. Meekness is power brought under control. And the final sense of the word meek comes from the fact that the biblical language uses this word most often to describe a subservient, a submissive, and trusting attitude before God. In fact, biblically speaking, meekness is much more a vertical trait than it is a horizontal one. It's a trait that describes your relationship with God far more than it describes my relationship with other people, though it certainly does that as well. It's the characteristic that makes man bow low before God so he can stand high before other men. I love how D.A. Carson, he's a biblical scholar, he describes it this way. This is, this is really helpful. Individually, each man tends to assume without thinking that he is the center of the universe. Therefore, he relates very poorly to the four billion other people who are laboring under a similar delusion. But the meek man sees himself and all others under God. He does not think himself more highly than he ought. Therefore, he's able to relate well to other people. See, it's the meek man who gets this. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. I think, actually, this is probably the primary sense in which Jesus uses the word meek. And here's why. Quick history lesson. Um, in between the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, there's about 400 years of history that is not recorded in the Bible. We call it the intertestamental period or second temple period of Judaism. And in those 400 years... A translation arose of the Old Testament. There was Jewish scholars, about 70 of them, who got together and said, let's translate the Old Testament, which is written in Hebrew and Aramaic, let's translate that into the Greek language so that people today, in their, in their day, can read the Bible in our language. And they call that the Septuagint. Okay, Quick history lesson. That was written about 300 years prior to Jesus. Jesus comes along, and many of the things that he quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes the Septuagint's translation of the Old Testament, which he is actually doing in this verse. Jesus is quoting Psalm 37, which is all about God's blessing to meek people. 
It's all about God's blessing to those who are bowing low before God. So this is the sense in which we understand what meekness is all about. I would encourage you, turn with me to Psalm 37. I'm going to read a few of these verses here. Psalm 37, um, and I want you to get a sense of what Jesus is getting at here, okay? Starting in verse 3. Psalm 37, 3. King David says this, and this is what Jesus quotes, or is getting at. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness shine like the dawn. The justice of your cause like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Jump down to verse 10 really quick. A little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy great peace. And a little bit later, he, he says, those the Lord blesses will inherit the land. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land. So, so get this. Trust in the Lord. Take delight in him. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret. This is the attitude of the meek. Those who have a trusting and waiting and patient attitude and heart posture before God. Those are meek people. And what does Jesus, or what does King David say? And then Jesus later quotes, he says, those people are going to be blessed by, the, by, by God. How? They will inherit the land. Now the interesting thing is, according to Psalm 37, the meek people are getting this blessing from God which is a public demonstration of his favor, like we've said earlier, right? The blessing is God's demonstration of approval, saying, I will publicly approve you, those of you who are such and such. So poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger, thirst after righteousness, right? And so on. And, and so this is what God is doing to elevate those who are meek, those who wait patiently before him and trust in him. I'm going to get into it later, what, what he means by inherit the land, which is an interesting study. But it's those people who are divinely blessed, according to Jesus, who will inherit the earth. So really quick to summarize, I want you to stay with me here. Meekness describes a virtue that lays somewhere between two extremes. Meekness describes power that's been brought under control. And meekness describes a submitted and trusting attitude before God. This is what Jesus is referring to. In Matthew 5, 5, he's speaking to this massively important concept. It's huge. In fact, I would be willing to say it's hard to find anybody in the kingdom, according to what Jesus is saying. It would be very hard to find anybody in the kingdom who is not meek. Because the kingdom blessing is given only if you're meek. Meekness matters a lot. But here's the deal. This is interesting. Strangely enough, is big of a deal as this is in the Bible. There's only two people that the Bible verbally attributes meekness to. There's only two people in the whole Bible that it specifically says this person was meek and this person was meek. Moses and Jesus. Now, now notice this. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. Moses 
is described as being a very humble man, more humble than anybody else on the face of the earth. Same word. That could be translated meek. Okay, in some translations it is translated meek. I want you to get the, the context of the story. This is what happens. So Moses marries one wife. Um, she dies. Moses now is about to marry another wife. And she happens to be a black African woman. All of a sudden, as soon as he goes to marry this black African woman, his brother and sister start questioning his judgment because they think, they're nervous that he's about to spoil his family line. Soil his family line, I'm sorry. You thought racism was not an old-time issue. This is a very racist issue here. Okay? And in fact, God is absolutely incensed with them. Not only, so they start, they start questioning Moses' judgment. They start questioning Moses' divine appointment. They're like, wait a second. Why does Moses have to be the only one who can speak for God? Why can't we speak for God? And then God actually shows up. And verbally, publicly, in front of everybody, corrects Moses' brother and sister. And specifically spite, smites his sister Miriam with leprosy. In front of everybody. He says, do not talk about the Lord's anointed this way. And all the while, while this is happening, what is Moses doing? He's actually, you read Numbers 12, he's actually doing nothing. His first recorded words come way down in verse 13, where he starts to pray for his sister and says, oh Lord, heal her. I think this is where we begin to see Moses' meekness. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't answer his critics. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't try to argue or explain his actions. He doesn't complain about their racism even. Instead, what does he do? He's silent and he lets the Lord take up his cause. And the first thing he does with his mouth is to pray for his sister who is in the wrong. No one would ever call Moses a, a doormat or a pushover. The man who stood before Pharaoh... But here's the meekness of Moses. He doesn't strike out at his critics. He instead lets God be the one who stands in for him. To vindicate him. Moses, obviously very much a man of action. Impulsive action at times. Grew in meekness as he let God be the one who stood up for him and defend himself. Moses doesn't say a word. He doesn't have to. He's the meekest man up until this time who ever lives, but ironically, the only one who did not inherit the, the promised land. And you're like, wait a second. Why not? In a very crucial moment of God's revelation and provision to, him, to his people, when, when they get to right outside the promised land, they're almost done with their 40 years, right? Numbers chapter 20. Moses is commanded to speak to the rock. And you can, you can notice this. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. That was actually a moment God intended to reveal the Messiah, a, a foreshadowing of the Messiah to his people. Very crucial messianic moment. And God says, if you speak, 
living water will come out. I mean, you can understand how significant an action like that would be to foreshadow the Messiah. And instead, because Moses is angry and upset and, and not willing to let God defend him and vindicate him and speak for him, Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, wails on the rock with his stick. Right? And so in a crucial moment, and a critical lack of meekness, Moses actually is prevented from inheriting the land. So we see the, the, the meekness contrasted and compared with Moses, right? Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus actually describes himself as meek in Matthew chapter 11. I love this. You can turn there if you want. This is definitely one worth highlighting. Um, I also have it on the screen. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle, meek, same word, pros, and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The incarnation of meekness. Jesus was both the lion and the lamb. This is meekness. The, the, the great balance between two abused extremes. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. When he was mocked and humiliated, he said nothing. When he was confronted by Pilate, he kept silent. When his friends betrayed him, he said nothing. When Peter denied him, he restored him to fellowship and service. When Judas kissed him in Gethsemane, he called him friend. And even in the, in the, the, the pain of death, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Conversely, not only was Jesus the lamb, he was the lion. He radiated power. When it came to matters of worship and the welfare of others, Jesus was a lion. He rebuked the Pharisees' hardness of heart, and he healed the man's withered hand on the Sabbath. He was angered when his disciples tried to prevent little children from coming to him. He made a whip and drew out the money changers from the temple twice. And he called Satan, he called Peter Satan when he tried to prevent him from his heavenly mission. All of this came from Jesus, the incarnation of gentleness. So when you analyze the two people who are called meek in the Bible, this is what you learn. The one who is meek has a gentle spirit before God. At the same time, the meek person possesses immense strength and fierceness. Couched in self-control. Extending love to others rather than retaliation, trusting that God will vindicate him. But also standing up fearlessly for others when they're being abused. I hope you're beginning to see why there's such a blessing Jesus pronounces on the meek. This is a fundamental characteristic of those in the kingdom. The meek man responds differently to life because the Lord is in charge of his life. This is the person who has willingly submitted himself and bowed low before God so that he can stand courageously and fiercely on the behalf of other people. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is self-control self which manifests itself in a gentle spirit based on an unshakable confidence in God. Let me say it again. This, this, is, this is important. Meekness is self-control, which manifests itself in a gentle spirit 
based on this unshakable confidence before God. You want to know why you stand up for yourself and not for other people? Why your power is displayed in terms of defending yourself and not other people? I ask myself this. Brent, why, why are you so quick to be defensive when you're attacked, but you're so hesitant when you see other people in trouble? Because I don't actually think God's going to come through. That's the opposite of meekness. So what does meekness look like in practice? I want to give you three practical answers. Number one, it's gentleness when provoked. Meekness is gentleness when you're provoked, when your pride is touched on, when your fears are activated. It's gentleness. Some of you guys have hurts that have happened in your life. And I often like to refer to them as kind of arrows that have been stuck in your side. You didn't ask for it. You didn't put it there. But it happened. And like I said last week, sometimes you need to go back and grieve that. That's how that comes out. That's how that gets healed. But if you haven't yet, then someone comes along, they don't mean you harm. They don't intend to upset you or offend you. But they might have accidentally bumped that arrow that's in your side. And then you get mad at them. That's not meekness. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's hard to know what your arrows are. And so if I accidentally bump that, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And the response on the other end, if, if, if I have an arrow inside of me, if I've got a, something that I haven't fully dealt with and you put, touch on that with me, what Jesus is saying here is, Brant, you need to be meek. You need to give grace in response, gentleness when you're provoked. Number two, it's boldness in the face of evil. To say, on the behalf of somebody else, who's being abused or mistreated. One of, one of the most awesome examples I can think of is a man by the name of Tim Tebow. He wrote John 3.16, right? I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's heresy. Tim Tebow is very famous for football. Very strong guy. Very popular person. One of his greatest life's work right now is fighting against human slavery in this world. Did you realize there's more slaves today than there ever been, have been in the history of humankind? In terms of like trafficking, sex trafficking, and sex slavery. And one of his biggest passions is to actively fight against that. Someone who has so much strength, who could get so much glory, and yet instead says, I'm going to submit to God and fight on behalf of other people. Boldness in the face of evil. Number three, it's open and approachable by others. Meek people are open and approachable by others. The glory we seek is given to the meek. So how do you become meekness? Ironically, this is actually one that you can seek. The previous two, the, the blessing just happens to come if you are poor in spirit, if you're mourning. Jesus isn't saying actively seek that out. But there is actually biblical precedent to say you can seek out meekness. So here's the first way. Live to walk in the Spirit. Don't miss it. If it needs to be our highest aim to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk in step with Him. This is the way that we become meek. Here's why. A meek 
life. A meek heart, a meek mind is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. I've heard far too many sermon, sermon series, nine-part sermon series, on how you can get all the fruits of the Spirit. How you can develop them more in your life. That's not the point of Galatians 5. The point is, be filled with the Holy Spirit and these nine things just naturally happen. They're fruits. Right? You're not the one producing the fruit. That's God's job. Your job is to be filled with God. Be filled with His Holy Spirit. And when you are, a natural result is meekness. So how do I get meekness? It just happens. It's a product of grace. But I guarantee you, I will see it in your life if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. Make this life not about you, but to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Meekness comes through grace, and I receive this grace when I walk in step with the Spirit. So number one, live to walk in the Spirit. Number two, learn the ways of the Son. The Son of God, Jesus. The second way... We learn meekness is to yoke ourselves to Jesus. I love what he says here. Again, I'm going to go back to Matthew 11. Jesus says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me. Why? Because I'm meek. In biblical times, a younger ox would be attached to an older, more experienced ox. And how were they attached? A yoke was put around their necks and they were both to walk and plow, and work, and serve together. And as that would happen, the younger, untrained ox would learn the proper pace, and the voice of the master, and the right direction to go. We learn meekness by being yoked to Jesus, by laboring with Jesus, by surrendering our life and our will to him for direction, by learning his ways in this world. This is the promise of Jesus. If we yoke ourselves to him, if we work where Jesus is working, if we walk at the pace that Jesus is walking at, translation, some of you are too busy, we will learn gentleness and humility. We will become So live to walk in the Spirit and to learn the ways of the Son. One final note. There's, like I said, there's this promise attached right at the end that they will inherit the earth. Awesome. Does that mean I instantly level up in the world and now I'm the king? <laughs> right? Like, what does it mean to inherit the earth? And I think to understand this, we have to wrap our minds around the biblical story for the first century Jew that Jesus is speaking to right now. It's those to whom Jesus is speaking, they don't have any concept of owning Italy or all of Africa. Right? That, that's not in their mind. When Jesus says they'll inherit the earth, they're simply longing for shalom, God's peace in the, in the land of Israel that experience God's peace in God's presence, which would fulfill God's promise to God's people. And so the fundamental promise to Abraham and a promise that shapes everything about exile and return and hope and promise in the, in the message of the prophets is dwelling in peace in, and in, in holiness in the land that God promised to them. This is the grand vision on the horizon 
that God's people are looking forward to. And so as Jesus is speaking, this promise calls to mind not only the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12 to inherit a specific land, but it also calls to mind the promises to the oppressed and the waiting in Psalm 37, which Jesus is quoting here. See, Jesus says that meek people are not like the zealots who use violence to seize the land. Meek people choose to absorb injustice personally and let God be their defense. So begs the question, is Jesus specifically referring to Israel dwelling in the land? Or is Jesus referring to some future possession of the entire earth that God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, would own? The answer is yes. Here's why. When Jews would talk about inheriting the land, it, it commonly became an expression of this great blessing from God. And actually, as you read the Hebrew of 30, Psalm 37... That's the sense in which meekness is used. That the meek people who trust God would actually possess the land. It's, it's kind of like a historic sense. And then Jesus, instead of quoting the Hebrew Bible, which he does at other times, he does that on the cross, for example, Jesus actually quotes the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And in that translation... Inherit the land means a future sense. Inherit. Someday I will possess it. In other words, God has not actually forgotten his promise to the Jews. God will fulfill all of his promises and all of his blessings that he's said, Jews, if you are faithful to me, if you remain as my people, I will be your God and I will give you an inheritance. That will be true. Additionally, though, what Jesus says is those of you in front of me who are meek, you will inherit the earth. So inheritance was this promise for them that they would inherit the land of Canaan, the Jews would, for a long time. This is what people looked forward to. It was a great blessing. And so it was spoken of in the journey in the wilderness. And their hopes were finally realized when they came into the promised land. You can read this in the book of Deuteronomy. This is how they talked about coming into the promised land. So when Jesus comes along, the Jews are actually in the constant habit of using this Old Testament promise as a proverbial expression to refer to great blessings of any kind. Perhaps as the sum of all blessings. To inherit the land became typical to describe the sum and the, the, the end goal of all the blessings of God. So that's why the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, says there will be a rest for the people of God someday. We will inherit a land. So as Jesus comes along, he's not saying that the meek in his time would own great property or have many lands, but that they would inherit future blessings for God's people alone. This is the point. When Jesus uses this language here, he's intentionally using land inheritance language from Psalm 37 to say that the meek are going to be welcomed gloriously into his kingdom to partake of his blessings, to, to enjoy the fruits and the glories of the heavenly promised land forevermore. Y'all, a better day is coming, okay? I know that there is pain here. I know that there is suffering here. I know that there are injustices done to you, things that on this side of heaven will never be righted. 
And Jesus is saying, there is an inheritance that is waiting for you. I know that you see the comfort and the wealth and the ease and the influence that the unbelievers seem to live with in this world. But the meek, they put their trust in God that there will be a day of vindication. There will be a day of exaltation that we are looking forward to. Do you want to receive the kingdom of heaven and as a result inherit everything in this world? You can, but you have to enter through the door marked blessed ones only. And in this case, this specifically refers to the meek who have submitted themselves to God. Blessed. One, one scholar, he said it this way and I loved it. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth after the proud have killed themselves trying to possess it. We are the ones who will be left standing to whom God says, you are my favorite. You're blessed. The glory that we seek is given to the meek. Jesus, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and help us to learn the ways of Jesus. Help us to learn your ways and, and walk in step with you so that we can be filled up with you and live as the meek ones. The ones who have divine power brought under control. That have submitted ourselves to you and we're walking in your ways. God, help us to be the ones who visibly demonstrate to the world that God can live with his people because he is shaping us. Help us to be the meek ones, God. Amen.